0: Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. So the last time we were here, we saw two men with vastly different backgrounds and how they became really brothers in Christ and how their eyes were opened to spiritual truth. Today we're going into the parable of the ten minas, which is largely precipitated by improper expectations of the Lord's messiahship. And the underlying theme, I believe, here is that People have high expectations of of God, but we, as people, as his creation, don't often meet his expectations. And you see that disparity. People want God to do this and to do that, and he should have done this, and he should have stopped that. But the same people who are so ready to blast God haven't really looked in his word and haven't really said, well, what does God expect from me? He made me, right? So we're going to look into that little bit of that underlying theme. And starting with verse 11, he says, Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So let's look at the precursors to this parable of minas. Number one, Jesus just got done giving sight to both Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus, and in two different ways. He's talking about, he spoke about salvation and seeking the lost. He has a huge following, He's on his way to Jerusalem, which is about 10 miles southwest of Jericho, coupled with the fact that it's the Passover season. And what's notable about that? The Passover season is deliverance season. They were delivered from Egypt. They were delivered uh, through the plagues. They were, you know, the Lord delivered them. So it was all about deliverance. You've got people flooding the city because it was one of the required feasts of the Jewish people to attend. Taking all that together, the Jewish people no doubt are excited no doubt preoccupied with conquering messianic themes. And it says they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Well, that's interesting because what about the fact that the Old Testament is replete with references to the suffering Messiah? We know Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, but there's so many psalms that uh, are so wholesale filled with suffering, rejection, and betrayal regarding the Messiah, Right. And the fact that Jesus continued to stress to the people of his coming suffering, Jesus didn't lead them on to anything differently. He didn't you know, he didn't lead them on. He didn't say, I'm going to come in and I'm going to pull the sword and everybody jump the Romans. He didn't do that. He was very frank with them about his coming sufferings and crucifixion. You know what I call this? I've coined the phrase called desire based theology. And it happens all the time. You make God in your own image based on your own desires and your own emotions. Don't confuse me with the facts of God's word. I want to believe what I want to believe about God. And I've actually heard people say that to me, like, stop, stop, too much information about God's word. I have my preconceived thoughts and I don't want you to try to change them, right? Um, It's very interesting. But you see that many people propagate doctrines based on presuppositions or personal experiences, their own expectations. And I'll give you some examples. And a lot of these started, some of these uh, examples started outside Christianity and ended up becoming a part, you know, of Christianity. One, Gnosticism, which is really esotericism and Nicolaitism, which means that basically a few people hold the deep secrets of the faith. The masses can't know God, but we know, you know, from the word Gnosis to know, right, knowledge. And that appeals to people who have dominating personalities, who want to be in that, you know, in the in crowd, in that clique. Libertinism, unending grace, casting off rules, really hedonism is, is kind of put in there. It's, uh, well, God will take care of it. Jesus died on the cross. You know, I could do pretty much whatever I want. It's grace, grace, grace. That appeals to people, think about it, with a lack of self-control. On the flip side of libertinism is strict legalism, which is, you're pigeonholed into every minutia of the rules. The Pharisees were like that. I have to be, you know, I have to walk within each commandment of God and I can't step outside the box or I'm going to get whacked by him. Strict legalism. It's, um, it appeals to people who can't make decisions. Appeals to people who are maybe insecure or self-loathers. I deserve to be treated like this, right? And you, you can see this the, the psychology, uh, for lack of a better word, regarding these things. The health and wealth gospel. Unfortunately, it's often motivated by greed and a desire not to face persecution. Because if you buy into that enough, you don't ever have to get sick. You never have to suffer. You never have to be persecuted. Because if you're really a true Christian and you have enough faith, God gets you away from that. Well, what about all the multitude of Christians in developing countries that are being slaughtered every day for their testimony? Does that mean they're bad Christians? It doesn't work. It doesn't play out. Uh, works-based religion. Really, and again, it appeals to people with a high opinion of themselves. God needs me to do this. I have to work because God needs me. I'm, I'm special. And even a form of nihilism, which is, means that when you die, everything ceases to exist. There's no ever, you know, there's no uh, punishment, there's no hell, there's no, none of that stuff. They don't believe in consequences for actions. They believe that judgment and punishment is inherently cruel, so they don't want to believe it. But again, all the judgments of God are righteous. Our judgments aren't because we all have biases. That's what makes our judgments not righteous. But God is perfectly righteous. So if he judges, you you can bet that it's a good decision. So you have the people's expectations and God's expectations. So start with the people's expectations. The stage is set. They're looking for, and they're hoping to see it in Jesus, they're looking for a Maccabean-style conqueror to throw off the Roman yoke, and they won't settle for anything less. For those of you who are history buffs, they're looking for that. It it wasn't but a few centuries ago where they're at, the second century BC, the Hasmonean dynasty, the Hasmonean family, the Maccabees, they threw off the yoke of the Seleucids, who who had control over the area at the time, and they're hoping to see a little bit of the same with Jesus, right? Right. You see how quickly, though, the Hosanna, save now, Lord, we beseech you, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're all crying out to Jesus, as we'll see. You're going to see that crowd morph into the crucify him, crucify him crowd only in a matter of days. We're talking a few days here as we go through the scriptures. Um, God's expectations are a little bit different, which is why Jesus goes into the parable to make that distinction between the people's expectations and God's expectations, Verse 12. It says, Therefore he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him, and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. In a historical sense, you've got to put yourself into the minds of the people at that time. There's going to be a lot of history in this one today, so those of you who are history buffs are going to like this. But in a historical sense, they would remember that Herod the Great died in, at around 4 B.C., and he had sons who took over, you know, uh, different portions of, the, of that area. And his son, Herod Archelaus, was slated to take Judea. Now, he had to go to Rome, this guy, before the, the emperor, Caesar Augustus, to be ratified as the king. He had to go to, to Rome to get that title. But the Jews hated him, with good reason. He was a cruel man. He was an evil man. So they sent a delegation of about 50 men to go to uh, Caesar Augustus and plead with him not to make Herod Archelaus their king. Well, history tells us that he didn't get the title king, but he did get control over that area. It didn't last that long. He ruled for about ten years, and then he was out. And I'm I'm getting to this for a reason. There's a few people that represented or that replaced Herod Archelaus, and uh, starting with, it was about five prefects, Capanius, Marcus Ambibulus, Annius Rufus, Valerius Gratus, and Pontius Pilate. There's no other reason that I say those names as I think they're funny. So, so starting with Capanius, he was a Roman prefect, and ending with Pontius Pilate, who you would be familiar with. Uh, okay. So what happens is, now when that happens, the, they take away the Jews' right to self-govern. And one of those things is the, the uh, right to capital punishment. That's why they have to take Jesus to the Roman authorities to crucify him. Because now they have prefects, uh, Roman prefects in there instead of Jewish, you know, half kings. And what's interesting is if you go back to Genesis 49, 10, a very important time-sensitive scripture. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And what that meant was Shiloh was another name for the Messiah. It was a prophecy made by Jacob to his son Judah. And what happened was, he was saying that when the sceptership is removed from, from the, you know, the Jewish people, then the Messiah will appear. So the, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, gets taken over by the Assyrians and the northern kingdom, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. And that whole time, they were vassal states. They were allowed to run day-to-day operation. They just had to give tribute money and certain things to the oppressive government. But here, when Capanius took over, right, the sceptership was removed because they had to, they couldn't you know, carry out capital punishment in a lot of their day-to-day uh, their things. So you see that this, this scripture is fulfilled, this prophecy in this point in time, stating that that window of opportunity for a Messiah to come to the Jewish people has come and gone. It can't happen again. So that's one of them that we're going to go through. But Jesus in this parable uses the familiar, the temporal realm, the historical, the things that they would be familiar with, to understand the unfamiliar, the spiritual realm, where Jesus came from, because he came from heaven to explain that to them. So who are the cast of characters here? We'll start with the nobleman. Jesus is speaking about himself. Jesus is a picture of that nobleman. He ascends to heaven after the resurrection and will return in power and glory, Matthew 24. I want to read to you John 14, 1 through 4. Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. So here's a picture of Jesus who, after the ascension, right, he goes to be with the Father, and when he comes back in the rapture, He calls his people to himself, to the place that he's been preparing for the last 2,000 years. So there's a little bit of uh, similarities there. Now, the irony is when the Messiah comes back as the desired conqueror in the future, he will reject those who rejected the suffering Messiah. You don't get to choose which type of God you want. These people were looking for a conquering military hero, and they didn't get it the first time. But when he comes back as that, he's going to reject those who didn't accept him as the, uh, as the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah. The citizens in the story. These are the rest of the inhabitants of the earth. They're his citizens whether they like it or not. They will obey Jesus out of adoration or obligation. And that's our choice. We get two choices. Do we want to do it out of adoration, which is probably why we're here, or do we want to do it out of obligation? One day, Philippians 2 tells us, That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord, whether you like it or not. So the main difference between, let's get this straight, um, this historical count and the parables is that Jesus is a righteous king despised by the wicked, where Herod Archelaus was a wicked king despised by his subjects. So there's the main difference. Now, the mina, what is a mina? A mina was equivalent to 50 shekels. What's a shekel? A shekel was equivalent to a figure of $1,920 or $128, depending on whether it was gold or silver. This was a weight, it was a monetary weight, and depending on which precious metal it was, depending how much money it would be worth. 10 minas was equivalent to, adjusted for that time, roughly $64,000, or just shy of a million dollars, whether it was, again, gold or silver. The point here is that was a huge amount of money to the people of that day. And the point for us is that God's gifts are priceless. It certainly would be a shame to waste his resources. And in verse 14, you can see the hatred that the world has for Jesus. It says that his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Again, Jesus is that king and uh, you see the hatred the world has for him. You could see it in our schools. You could see, even when my son goes to school, how they will celebrate different cultures and religions, but not Jesus, nothing to do with Jesus. That's, that can't happen. Uh, in the stores, it was last year there was a big uproar about many of the stores taking Christmas out of the names and just saying generically, Happy Holidays, but speaking about the different holidays, not Christmas, right? So the name Jesus, if you go into a mixed crowd and say Jesus, start saying Jesus, people are going to get uncomfortable. They're going to, they're going to you know, start doing this and start twitching. and you know, The name Jesus is very polarizing to people. People have so many different opinions of who Jesus is. And interestingly enough, I love this portion of scripture, Revelation 6, the sixth seal, where the people say that when, you know, Jesus is revealed, they say to the mountains, Fall on us, crush us, kill us, hide us from him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. People would rather be crushed by the mountains than to face Jesus Christ and, and humble themselves and receive him. Psalm 2, you know, it says, Why do the na- nations rage? You know, why do the people take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed? We want to break his bonds, we want to break his cords. People all the way in Psalm 2, it's a messianic psalm about how people would say, we don't want this Jesus to reign over us. You see it, right? All over the scriptures. And in verse 15, we see that Christians need to bear fruit. We need to give an account of our resources here because the message of salvation is too important. And it's all about perspective. See, you, we could look at this and some people might be saying, gee, this is, i got to bear fruit, you know, i got to do business with demeanors. Uh, am I, am I, what am I doing? Am I doing it? Am I not doing it? What, what do I do here? Right? I don't want to give you that impression. See, we should consider it an honor to further the kingdom of heaven because God doesn't need us. He can have the angels do it. As a matter of fact, if you look in the book of Revelation... The, there 's one particular part where the angel flies through the heavens and tries to explain to people you, you need to repent you need to this is what you need to do so in, in a certain portion, the uh, angels are spreading the gospel. We see the one hundred and forty four thousand Israelis who were, who are were sanctified they get the mark uh, they get a particular mark by God where they can 't be harmed and when God anoints you and sets you apart he doesn 't set you apart to do nothing. He sets you apart for his servants his service it 's you know uh, thought that These Israeli saints who were protected are actually the ones going to give the gospel as the church has been removed, has been raptured. People have the wrong idea of God. It's not an awful thing to give an account to do business or to bear fruit. We should do these with joy. I'm actually, I'm excited. I can't wait for the day that we send out our first full-time missionary from within our body. I can't wait for the day that, that somebody is, is brought up and edified and they say, the Lord's put it on my heart to start a fellowship, to start a church. I'm excited about that. To me, it's, it's just exciting. Get giddy about it. But what's also exciting is to see someone you discipled lead someone else to the Lord and disciple them. That's exciting. It's exciting to see you pour yourself into a couple that's headed for divorce. And you pour yourself as a couple into that couple. And you know what? The marriage is saved. The marriage is repaired and they patch things up. That's exciting to see. You know, I look at this as joyous, right? This is a joyous thing. So I want to put everything back into perspective. Verse 16. It says, Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little. You have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. And another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept away and put it in a handkerchief for I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Now, I wanna turn your attention to two other parables. One, I'll just go over it briefly. But it's in Matthew 25, which we did cover, it's the parable of the talents. Also a unit of weight, also worth something, and also the parable of the unjust servant, which we uh, covered some Sundays ago in Luke. Now, the difference between the parable of the mina and the talents, some people lump them together. They're really not to be lumped together. The talent, you had a different amount given initially, but the same reward. The mina... They initially got the same amount, but they got different rewards. So there's an inverse relationship there. Now, it could be, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but the different amount in the talent was our abilities because we all have different abilities. You know, some people are great encouragers. Some people, you know, have the gift of healing. Some people, uh, whatever, whatever your abilities are, whether they're physical abilities or spiritual abilities, God gives you, everyone has something a little bit different. Uh, The same reward, approval or acceptance he says to the servants in the uh, parable of the talents welcome into the joy of the lord the mina the same amount everybody gets the same measure whether it's could be the gospel salvation the word it's something that we all get as christians in the same amount and we get in the mina we get the different rewards different responsibilities some type of rewards you know they get different cities right And we also saw in the parable of the unjust servant, which also has a theme to catch those two, is that God wants us to use everything, even unrighteous mammon, at our disposal to further the kingdom of God. You know, of course, you've got to do it in a righteous manner. It can't be uh, cutthroat business to to further God's kingdom. I mean, obviously, it has to be done in, in the right character. And there's a repetitive theme of diligence in all these parables. But I have heard people say, what can I do? What can I do? Um, I don't have much money, I can't teach, what would God want with me? You know, I don't look at myself as anything special. Well, I've asked those same questions over the years. Here's a question, can you pray? We all can pray, right? Can you pray for me? I hope so. Uh, can you set a good example? That's really sorely lacking in our society. You see, I tell you, pastors don't have a good track record. Pastors, priests, you know, religious men, they, they have a bad track record. Can you set a good example? And when you set that good example, when somebody asks you why you set that good example, when they ask you why you have joy, can you say the name Jesus Christ? You know, we're we're getting somewhere here, and it doesn't take much. Um, Can you love people? Can you exercise your spiritual gifts? You see, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take wealth. You just use what God gave you. Be who God created you to be. You know, I can't be somebody else. I can't be you know, whatever, whoever I think is a great preacher, you know, you can't be the person next to you. You are the person that God made you to be. You're unique. You're part of the body of Christ. You're important. And God wants you to use that uniqueness to further the kingdom of heaven, right? We can all do it. So verse 18 through 19, you see that your reward and your responsibility will be proportionate to your diligence with your resources here And some speculate that, you know, the cities that you get uh, could be in the millennial kingdom. It's speculation that God will take the believers, depose all the dictators, and put the believers in charge during the millennial kingdom in different provinces. I don't know that to be a fact, but it is interesting conjecture. Uh, Because it is, you know, diligence is important. There's nothing worse with somebody getting a position that they didn't earn. And we see that all the time. And if you've been in the workforce uh, any amount of time, but that's not going to happen. Personally, I hope he makes me the governor of some coastal Mediterranean city. (laughs) I like the weather. I like the diet. And you know what? I've really been hooked on goat cheese lately. (laughs) Because on lactose intolerance, the goat cheese has smaller protein molecules that can dissolve. Whatever. I like goat cheese. (laughs) It's not important. But you, you also see that these people are not working for their salvation. Number one, once you're saved, you work to bless the Lord. You have to follow the order. You're saved, and then you bless the Lord. You don't work for your salvation. Two, they also say, watch the wording here. Your mina has earned, not I earned. They say, the servants say, your mina has earned. We can't take credit. God gives us the resources. They have the power. We just need to use the uh, diligence in expressing it. It's important to pick up on these things. But what I find very curious is one of the persons' response, the one servant in verses 20 through 21. He's not very um, respectful. He's not really very nice to the master. I'll read it again. It says, and another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in the handkerchief for. I feared you because you were an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not. sow.' to me, I see that as a picture of laziness, putting the blame on God. You didn't work for this. Why should I do your work for you? You know, I put this in a handkerchief. You know, you didn't you didn't sew anything for this, so so here it is. Here it is, right back to you. It could be a play it saved Christian. You know, don't mention Jesus. Don't speak out on the evils of society. We don't want to make waves with God's word. Why? Because I want to keep my status in society. I like the world, it treats me nice. So I'm certainly not going to do anything that's going to get me fired or have my friends reject me or, you know, not get that promotion that I was looking for. So I'll keep that kind of faith, you know, put it in a handkerchief, right? Or it's, and it's a total mischaracterization of God. It could be maybe this person's not a true believer. Matthew 7:21 through 23 speaks about many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. But because in the, it's in the parable of the talents, right? Um, I, what's very interesting is in the parable of the talents, the unprofitable servant there is cast into hell. All right. So and it's kind of hard to call yourself a Christian if you, you know, how can you say I'm a Christian? I go by the name of, of Christ and I don't love God and I never have joy and I have no desire to, to serve him. And certainly um, Christ is not reflected in my work, my attitude or my actions. Somebody uh, gave me a, a Harris poll within the last year it was taken and it said they surveyed people, do you believe in God, do you not believe in God? They surveyed born-again. People said, I'm a born-again Christian. 7% of born-again Christians said they're not sure if God exists. I mean, you're born again of the Spirit, right? You know, this is God. It's something that you can't see. You know, you can't, it's not tangible. And they say, well, I'm not sure that God exists. I don't get it. It only sounds really oxymoronic. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. So... Um, if the mina is represented by salvation or, or the gospel or the word, something we're all given in equal amounts. And I believe that if you reflect Christ and you exercise your fruits of the spirit, and your gifts, coupled with making known that you're a Christian, you're sowing seeds. I believe you can earn more minas. You see, God's not a hard tax taskmaster. He's not like we think about the uh, the children of Israel and they uh, when they were mad, the, you know, their overseers, they would they would make them work harder to make the bricks and they wouldn't give them the proper materials. God doesn't do that to us. He's not. This guy's wrong. He's not a hard man. And uh, we can't have that attitude towards the Lord. Verse 22. He says, And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? that at my coming I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has 10 minas. But they said to him, Master, he has 10 minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Does this seem harsh to you? Chuck Smith said that if you have a bizarre interpretation of scripture, then you have the wrong interpretation. I'll take that one further. If your interpretation of scripture makes God unjust, mean, or anything less than loving, fair, and generous, you don't understand God well enough, and you're misreading the scriptures. Go back and read them again and pray. And the last verse, he says, uh, he speaks about one mina being taken away from the guy who put it in the handkerchief. He gives it to ten, and then he says, but bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. So he deals with three groups of people here in three different ways. Uh, the first two groups, those who don't have, even what they have will be taken away. God doesn't reward laziness, even among believers. There was one scripture that I was feverishly looking for because uh, I finally found it. It's 1 Peter 4:17, where he says that judgment starts first with the household of God. What does that mean? Well, God doesn't need to be judged because he's perfect. He's talking about those who call themselves by God's name. Judgment will start, purifying will start with God's people first, and then the rest of the people will be judged later. And you see, actually, that the last judgment is the great white throne judgment. So, you know, God's people, 1 Peter 4.17, starts with the household of God. Two, the responsible or the diligent. The more they are this way, the more they will be rewarded. And three, the unsaved and the rebellious. Time will run out one day, and they will be eternally punished. So now we're going to move into the triumphal entry and we're going to see, again, the people's expectations on Jesus as this Messiah. And then actually the next time we come back, uh, we're going to see how that attitude starts to change about him. Verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he came near Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Lose him and bring him here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing him? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of him. So if you go from Jericho and you're traveling southwest, you're going to run into Bethphage, Bethany, the Mount of Olives, right? And then from there, if you go west across the Kidron Valley, you'll go into the city of Jerusalem. So just to give you a little geography of where everything is. And this is the the manner in which he's going. So he sends two disciples on a mission to get this young donkey and bring it to Jesus. That actually comes from Zechariah 9.9, which I want to read to you. One verse, Messianic, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that's where that uh, that's comes to light there. Jesus is preparing for his triumphal messianic entry, but not in the way that most people are going to expect it. And there's something in the Old Testament about, um, about unridden or unworked animals used for religious purposes. When we get into the, the whole thing surrounding the red heifer, the red cow, uh, they, they use it in religious services, but it can't have had a yoke on its back, right? It can't have been used by men. Verse 32, so those who were there sent, departed and found it just as he said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. So they end up getting questioned a little bit, but released the donkey quickly. Again, so far everyone is with Jesus, but we're gonna see in a few days that that changes. 35 then they brought him to jesus and they threw their own garments on the colt and they set jesus on him and as he went they spread their clothes on the road then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of olives the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise god with a loud voice for all the mighty works which they had seen it was customary for a conquering military hero to come in on a horse but jesus is different He's a humble peacetime king here. And again, in their minds, all they could think about is temporal, temporal, here and now, you know, gratification now, and Jesus is, obviously has eternal things in mind. What he's trying to do as the peacetime king, in a sense, is he's trying to introduce the peace, but not the way they're looking for. He's trying to introduce the peace with God, which was sorely needed at that time. Uh, Romans 5, 1 through 2 speaks about that. And a little bit about the clothes being put on the donkey, being the, the clothes being put under his feet, the people were doing that. Uh, if you look at 2 Kings 9, it was a monarchical coronation custom. Uh, when, G, when King Jehu uh, was, was coming up to be received, they did the same thing. They put the clothes on the floor, he would step over them, and then as he passed, they would pick up the clothes and take them back to themselves again. So you see a lot of imagery from the Old Testament bleed through into the New Testament. Verse 38, so they said, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. I want to turn your attention to Psalm 118, which has messianic elements to it. Psalm 118, starting with verse 25, 25 and 26, it says, save now, which is what that word hosanna means. Hosanna means save now, we beseech you. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Okay, that's interesting because if you go back to 22 now, the same psalm, starting with verse 22, it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day which the Lord has made. People say that a lot, but it's really referring to a particular day. And when, I'm, when I go into Daniel 9, you're going to see that this day was a day from all eternity. This one day was the important day. This 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 great day that the Messiah was supposed to come and, and present himself again. When you go into the time-sensitive prophecies, the day has come and the day has gone and it can't be repeated again. Many have tried to claim uh, a Messiah prior to Jesus and many have tried to claim the same thing after Jesus. But there's a... It's like somebody was telling me, or when I studied the thing about space travel and all that, when, the, uh, when a craft comes back into the Earth's atmosphere and it has to land in a certain spot, right? Uh, those of you who are familiar with that, there's a window. There's a certain way that the aircraft has to come into the atmosphere. If it comes straight in, it can get burned up and disintegrated. If, it, if the angle is too narrow or too uh, shallow, it will be deflected. Okay, And then it has to hit a certain portion of the earth as it comes in so it lands exactly where they want it to. It's a window. And it, the window comes and the window goes. right? And it's the same thing here. If you take eternity right, and mint it into little blocks of time, there was a certain window, a small window of a day out of the millions of days or whatever that have passed, that the Messiah was to come and to present himself according to the scripture. That window has come and that window has gone. So when you're witnessing to people who think that this one's the Messiah or that one's the Messiah, start with Genesis 49, 10, and I'll take you through to some of the other ones so you can show them that window, right? So, uh, you know, this day was an important day. Going back to Luke, Jesus says something interesting. If they were to keep quiet, the rocks would cry out. Now, I believe this is literal. Remember in Numbers 22? Balaam was on the donkey and the, the donkey sees the angel with the drawn sword and he keeps stopping and he crushes Balaam's foot and he gets mad at him and he beats the donkey and the donkey looks up to him and says, what do you beat me for? And Balaam actually starts to talk back to him. You know, like the donkey's talking, right? He was so angry, he didn't realize his donkey was talking and that shouldn't be. If God can open up the mouth of the donkey, uh, God can certainly make the stones cry out. And we saw all throughout Jesus' ministry many times where God opened up the heavens and said, this is my son, hear him. This is my son who I am well pleased. So I believe that if they did keep quiet, you see a whole bunch of rocks going, praise, praise, you know, praising Jesus. So I I think that's literal. And uh, okay, now I want you to go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. This whole window of opportunity thing is, I, I think is pretty neat. Now, this is a portion of scripture where Gabriel has been praying, he's in supplication, you know, for his people and, and, you know, asking the Lord for guidance and uh, Gabriel comes to him and he is a messenger angel and he he tells him what he needs to know and there's a lot of prophecy in Daniel, right? So much prophecy that uh, it's so stunning when we get into Daniel. I mean, we're not just talking about the Messiah, we're talking about battles that have come and gone like years, hundreds of years, thousands of years before they even took place, so people actually thought that Daniel was written afterwards but if you go through the Septuagint and some of these earlier writings it's obvious that uh it was written when it needed to be written prior to these things happening but Daniel chapter 9 verse 25 he says to uh Daniel he says know therefore and understand now he he prefaces it by saying he speaks about this is for your people meaning the Jews he says know therefore and understand that the that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times." So he's telling Daniel that you can actually take the clock, the stopwatch, click it from the command to rebuild Jerusalem, count so many years, and the Messiah will present himself, Messiah the Prince, which is always what the Jews were looking for, that messianic theme. Now, if you're taking notes, it's very interesting. The Hebrew word shabuah, okay, that's used here, the sevens, uh, it, it means seven, literally. He says there are seventy sevens that are determined for your people. The word seven just means it, it's a period of seven years, just like our word decade really means 10, but we understand decade to mean a period of 10 years, right? So if you take from the command to go forth and rebuild Jerusalem, now this was under the Persian empire, those of you who know history, The the, the ruler's name was Artaxerxes. I think it was Artaxerxes Longimanus. And he sent this decree in March 14th of 445 B.C. So from that time that the decree was given for the Jews to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, you can start the clock. Now, 69 years or uh, 60, how did he say this? Uh, Seven weeks and 62 weeks. So seven and 62 is 69 69 times 7 years is 483 years, all right, to the triumphal entry, really, where Jesus was. Now, if you do the math, you multiply and adjust for the Babylonian calendar. You get roughly 173,880 days, give or take, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. That's why... If you read in the scripture, there were many times that they tried forcefully to take Jesus and make him the king. Isn't that weird? You're going to be our king. We really like you. And Jesus had to withdraw from them because it wasn't the appointed time according to scripture. So that window again, this is a time-sensitive prophecy. Nobody else could fulfill the day that the triumphal entry came and went to fulfill that messianic prophecy. One other prophecy, if you're taking notes, so go write down 925, Daniel 925 and also Haggai 2.7, another time-sensitive prophecy, Haggai 2.7, which said that the Messiah would appear, you know, the desire of all nations would appear in the temple. Now, in the first temple, God's physical presence, the Shekinah glory, the, the Bible tells us came and then departed at some point in time. Then the temple was destroyed. In the second temple, there's no recording of that Shekinah glory returning. So this is a messianic prophecy of The Shekinah glory was literally fulfilled in the embodiment of Jesus Christ, Haggai 2.7. So isn't that neat? I like this stuff. Okay, um, and in closing here, you see the people. Now, let's bring it back to what's going on. You see the people are in a fervor about Jesus. They're so excited. They're, you know, in in the other... um, gospel. They're, they're waving the palm branches. They're throwing their clothes down so they could be trampled on and then take it back up. They're all yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. The religious leaders are mad, but they don't care. They are so excited about Jesus until they find out he has no plans to overthrow Rome. Then things change very quickly. When the religious leaders see this, that he has no plans to overthrow Rome, he doesn't meet their expectations. So they abuse him and send him to the Romans. When the people don't see any military maneuvers, they don't see any plans for him to overthrow Rome, he doesn't meet their expectations. So they go from Hosanna, which we'll see, to crucify him. Even the disciples are unsure, so they cut and run. They get out of there. The Bible records that it appears that only John and a few women were with Jesus through the whole ordeal. But the irony is that God didn't seem to meet anyone's expectations that that day, but those people fell into the trap of not meeting his. Why? Why? Well, they should have followed the Old Testament prophecies and received accordingly the Son of God and their chosen Messiah. They should have done businesses with the minas, but they aggregately didn't. Many of them wasted their minas. And what, what, you, what you see here is a, uh, an inequivalent set of expectations. Uh, people ha- and you know what? When you, when you argue with people or you have disagreements with people, think about it. That's what it comes down to. If you have expectations on somebody that are so, you know, you expect them to do this for you and that for you and this for you, uh, but you don't meet their expectations, there's going to be friction. There's going to be problems. And that's what you see here. Think about this. God has given us eternal life free of charge to us. It cost his son something, but it didn't cost us anything. What else do you think that we should expe- expect from God? And don't you think that the potter has a right, though, conversely, to expect something from his clay? So where do we fit in in all this? Well, the question is, have you lived your life for your own gain and desire up until this point? Have you been living a mediocre Christian life, not giving God what he deserves? Would it be a good idea to start using those talents and meanness to further the kingdom of heaven and become that profitable servant? If you haven't already done so, a good start is to receive God the way he wants to be received, the way he expects it, through his son Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. As always, the choice is yours. Let's pray. And don't you think that the potter has a